Welcome to the Close-Minded Podcast, where we engage lots of ideas with an open mind in order to close it again on something solid. Before we dive into the main portion of today's episode, please note that if you stick around until the end, I'm going to point you to some alternative voices that are challenging the approved narrative around this pandemic and the government's response to it. I don't necessarily agree with everything these people say, but it's extremely important that we engage ideas outside the echo chamber of the corporate press. In the case of COVID-19, I believe there's a lot of analysis that brings good news to the reality of this pandemic, things that you aren't going to hear if all you do is listen to the experts on TV or read the papers. On the other hand, there's also a lot of junk in the corners of the web that should be dismissed. I highly doubt that aliens cause the virus, for example, but I'm sure that somebody out there has what appears to be a well-sourced explanation of that theory. What I'll be directing you to is different. These are not crackpots, as far as I can tell. Despite what the corporate press would have you believe, there is actually a lot of debate within the scientific community about COVID-19 and what the best response should be from a public policy perspective. There are scores of reasonable questions that are routinely ignored by the gatekeepers of the media. You should be aware of them, and you should demand answers to them. The sources that I will link to are thoughtful, reasoned, and provocative. They are well worth your time. All I can say is, thank God for the alternative media in 2020. If you want to go straight to that content, just head on over to closemindedpodcast.com slash pandemic for all the details. Today, my guest is Brady Sorensen, employee health manager at a hospital in Topeka, Kansas. He has seen the impact of COVID-19 firsthand, and he has some thoughts on the virus and the government's response to it. Brady has also been immune compromised since he was eight months old, so he has a unique personal experience in addition to his professional vantage point. So with that, here's my interview with Brady Sorensen. Brady Sorensen, welcome to the Closed Minded Podcast. Oh, the closed-minded podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. I feel like I should fit in well here. I have a pretty closed mind. <laughs> so you work full-time in a large hospital system, um, and you've got, a, I think, probably a unique perspective on all of this that's happening with COVID-19 and our culture and within the medical establishment, um, both from your position and also because of your personal health status, which is that you've been in the high-risk category for probably all of your life. Um, t- tell me about, about that. Uh, yeah, so I would definitely classify as uh, one of the high-risk individuals. Um, uh, and I would probably have fallen in that category my entire life, or at least since eight months of age. Uh, at eight months old, I had uh, my first liver transplant. Um, and so with that, I, I've been immunocompromised. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, as, as uh, life went on, I actually had two additional liver transplants for a total of three, for those of you that are counting at home. Um, and on medications that suppress the immune system. So uh, basically I just, I get sick a lot easier. I'm first one to catch something. Uh, it's a lot more difficult for my body to fight something off. Um, and then on top of being immunocompromised, uh, high risk with COVID, COVID-19 specifically, uh, given a history of some uh, um, lung issues, um, fluid in my lungs. I've had a couple of lung surgeries, uh, so would, would definitely fall into 
the high risk category of if I get COVID-19, I'm probably going to be one of the people that is um, seeing the worst side of that disease. <clears throat> so before we even get into, you know, the industry and what we're seeing in our culture, tell me, is, is that something that you are fearful about? Like, are you concerned about getting it? Is that something that, that keeps you up? Or, you know, I, I know you've sort of dealt with, you know, the risk of sickness for your entire life. So I don't know if that, you know, affects at all how you're feeling mm -hmm. now, but just, just tell me about what it's like yeah. personally dealing with that. Yeah. So, um, I, I might not be the best, uh, kind of litmus test for people that are high risk and how they're feeling in regards to, um, COVID-19 or coronavirus. Uh, I tend to fall a little bit further down the spectrum of uh, being a little bit too laid back when it comes to uh, my personal health. Um, but that being said, I mean, yeah, there's, there's definitely uh, some, some uh, I don't know that I would call it really fear, uh, but it's, it's in the back of my mind as a risk. Uh, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna walk into uh, the hospital where I work and walk into the, to the ER or the ICU unit where we do have um, a few COVID-19 patients. You know, I'm not going to go be around those, those um, actively infected individuals. Uh, but as far as be being out uh, around other people, um, I've actually gotten in trouble with my wife a couple of times because I've gone to the grocery store and I don't think it's that big of a deal. Um, she does. Um, I don't. I don't wear a mask when I go out in public. Um, you know, if I see somebody that's hacking and coughing, yeah, I'm gonna try to stay as far away from them as possible. But if I see someone hacking and coughing, no matter what time of year it is, no matter if there's a pandemic or not, I'm probably going to stay as far away from possible or as far away as possible from them. So it's just, it's, you know, there, there are precautions that you take. Um, but for folks that are immunocompromised or for folks that are elderly, um, things like that or, or high risk due to pre-existing conditions, you know, we're, we're aware of the risk factors and whether it's COVID-19 or the seasonal flu or, you know, a few years ago with, with uh, Zika and Ebola, um, you know, there's always extra precautions that folks like myself um, take in those instances. We don't wall ourselves, or at least I personally don't wall myself off from society, but I do take extra precautions. Uh, but it's not something that I, it's definitely not something that keeps me up at night. Um, and it's, you know, there's, there's no more fear of, co of COVID-19, the disease. There might be some fear with everything else that's going on right now. But as far as the actual virus, uh, no, it's, it's not that scary to me. So in terms of, you know, what we're seeing 
the response be culturally in terms of government shutting things down everywhere, labeling certain things essential or not? And we're seeing increasingly draconian measures to enforce these restrictions across the U.S. and then also, you know, even in the U.K., or especially in the U.K. I think they're probably a little bit more hardcore about it. Um, what, what, what's your take on that whole approach? Is it necessary to quarantine all of society and do this and sort of entire shutdown of the economy? Or is there a different approach that we should be taking? Uh, yeah, it, to, to me, I, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that go into play here. Um, you know, you can look at it from the aspect of what, what do, what does it mean that we have these constitutional rights that we have? Why, why do we have them? What are they for? Uh, can they be overruled? Um, in, in the case of a national public emergency, um, you know, and, and you hear a lot of, of arguments saying, well, yeah, for, for short periods of time, we can throw those rights out the window um, for the greater good. And my thought behind that is, well, what the heck are, is the point of, of having a constitution then if you can just, you know, neglect those rights whenever it becomes, whenever somebody thinks that they ought to be neglected? Um, you know, so so from that standpoint, I think we have, or, or we, uh, I think that um, governing bodies have uh, gone far out of bounds. Um, and then in terms of, uh, you know, just the quarantine or the stay-at-home order or the shelter-in-place, whatever you want to call it, um, I, you know, I... I I really do think it's um, a bit ridiculous. Uh, it seems as though we took these first predicted models that everybody, where it was, that it's just going to blow up. It's going to um, grossly overwhelm our healthcare system. It's going to essentially shut down our country anyways so we might as well do it ahead of time and not have everybody get sick um so we so we went through with that we shut everything down and i don't think that we are seeing the the spread that um was predicted and it's you know anybody that that says oh well you know of course it's slowing down nobody's nobody's moving anymore well you got to take into account the fact that the virus is well one there can be silent silently infected you know so people that have the virus but have no signs or symptoms they can be wandering around infecting family members or people that that they're still working with their essential business or whatever um but on top of that there's kind of this two-week lag time of okay, we shut the, the city down two weeks ago, but we're still seeing, and, and Kansas is a, is a good example. I mean, we just shut everything down within the last couple of weeks, but we're still heading towards the peak of, of um, new infections. And so, uh, 
and that's because everybody was still moving around two weeks ago. Um, now, kind of all that to say, even even with the ramp up and the getting towards the peak and overwhelming the healthcare system, that it just that's not the case. Um, it is obviously the case in a few key states, uh, New York. New Jersey, they are way overwhelmed. Um, we're actually sending uh, some of our employees to uh, work at a, at a couple of sister hospitals in New Jersey. Uh, they are that short staffed um, and that busy. But a vast majority of places are not seeing that, that um, overwhelming surge of patients. Uh, and even the positive cases that we've had here in Kansas, um, we're not seeing the need for a majority of them to be in the hospital. Um, you know, and so I think of the negative consequences of shutting down the entire or society essentially. Um, and it's very obvious uh, from, from a, an economic standpoint of, you know, you think of all those non, essential businesses yeah they're they're getting hit hard um and it's really really unfortunate for them right now um uh, you know I, I numerous times i've you know thanked god that this is the job that i have right now because it is safe and it is secure um but yeah there's there are all those non-essential businesses that are just out of luck but then you you even move into the healthcare um, sector of of the of the economy, and we're the ones that uh, the economy was shut down so that hospitals didn't get overwhelmed. Um, and we see, uh, you know, whether it's there's some hospitals that have done um, massive cuts in pay for their employees because they're not making any money. The only people that are coming to their hospital, that are coming to their outpatient clinics, um, it's, it's just COVID-19 patients, essentially. Um, the hospital where I work at, we furloughed a lot of employees um, and not just employees who are not in patient care. We furloughed a lot of nurses. We furloughed a lot of uh, um, nurse aides, uh, a lot of um, x-ray technicians, things like that. So people that are actually focused on patient care. Um, and and this, uh, the actions that we've taken to slow the spread of the disease has resulted in not just uh, all economic industries suffering, but even healthcare, which is, when you think about it, kind of absurd that the, the public health crisis, which we thought was great enough to shut everything down, is not large enough to keep our healthcare, or our, our, our hospitals, our doctor's offices, fully staffed, making any money, we're losing money. And it's, so it's just mind blowing. Let, let, 
let's talk about that. Like that that's sort of the the cruel irony of this whole thing is that sort of in mm-hmm. a in a proactive attempt at a defensive approach to this, we've shut everything down. And then, you know, the result is, is you know, a lot of the emphasis has been on, you know, the, the 20 million unemployment claims, and which, of course, means that the actual number of is, is much higher. Uh, and thinking about all these small businesses mm-hmm. and restaurants and all these, all these small companies that are suffering and may never come back. But the cruel irony to this is that even the healthcare industry itself is sort of cutting off its nose despite its, fi- despite its face because when you've got all these layoffs or furloughs because non-COVID-related um, you know, healthcare services have just dried up because nobody's allowed to leave their house, yeah. then that basically undercuts yeah. the industry and uh, to even be able to treat you know, the next influx of COVID patients. Yes, absolutely. It's, uh, it, and it, you know, it, 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 I, I don't, I'm not even sure how to, how to make sense of it. Um, it, I, well, for instance, yesterday I was on, um, I was on a corporate call with, uh, all of the ardent care sites. Uh, there's about 30 hospitals. Um, there's, I think we're in 10 or 11 different states. Um, and one of the things we were talking about was game planning to, in each of our locations, go to the local um, governor and try to make an argument for them to, the term they used was allow, allow us to do elective surgeries again because right now we can't and that that, when you think about that i mean you're going to the governor of a state who maybe they've got a medical background but most likely they don't and and our chief medical officers the ceos of the hospital the you know chief nursing officer whoever else is involved public health officers are having to go to the governor ask permission to do surgery on a patient it, how is i you know it, it just that in no way seems acceptable or even rational um you know in the the amount of precaution that we that that health health centers uh, in general are taking right now are extreme. I mean, I would be shocked if one of our employees who was who cared for a COVID-19 positive patient ended up contracting the disease themselves. Um, so Why? they are just because the amount of from from door to door, the instant a suspected patient walks in our building, they get a mask. They immediately go to a room that's specifically for COVID-19 patients. If they end up being positive, they go to a specific unit for COVID-19 patients. And then any care provider or, or anybody, it could be a phlebotomist drawn blood, it could be an x-ray tech going in for a mobile x-ray. 
It could be a housekeeper cleaning the room after they're gone. Every single person going into that room is head to toe protective gear. Um, so do you guys so, have enough supplies for that? We do. Yeah. Yeah, we absolutely do. Uh, we're, we're actually, we do universal masking. So that means every single employee, every single day, wears the mask. They wear that mask until it gets soiled. So if they go into a patient's room who's sick and then come out, they would change the mask. Or if they, you know, if it gets wet just from, from breathing into it all day, they would change it. And in addition to all staff members getting masks, every single patient that walks through our doors, whether it's in the hospital or the clinic, gets a mask. Um, we don't have, we're not allowing visitors right now, so there's no worry there. Um, but it's the amount of, of things that we're doing to protect ourselves and our patients, we should, we should be having all sorts of any of the other services that we regularly have in that hospital should still be going on. And, and that's, you know, obviously my opinion. Um, but it just, I, we do a great job of keeping everybody safe um, and mitigating that risk. So I, I'm curious. So you're, you're on the inside of, you know, a, a hospital system, uh, you know, based out of out of Topeka, um, you know, you're a few thousand miles away from sort of the epicenter of where, uh, you know, the a lot of the cases are, whether it's New York or Seattle or New Orleans or wherever. Um, so I'm curious to know, as you guys have sort of received the data as it's been coming in over the last few weeks, you know, initially, the estimate out of the UK was like, you know, 2.2 million dead in the US. And then that got revised down to, you know, 200,000. And then that got revised again down to 100,000. And then it got revised again down to I think it's at 60,000 is what the current estimate is if if the last time that I checked. So along the way, what has been your response internally to thinking about how to deal with these numbers and how to prepare for an influx of patients and how to deal with those that come to your door? What, what has, what have those discussions looked like? Yeah. So there, there's several components to it. Um, one of which being, um, just the PPE, um, having masks, goggles, gloves, isolation gowns, all of that stuff. Um, that's kind of the first line of defense and, and, and being prepared. Um, so, Obviously, we're working. We had to work with um, a lot of other uh, locations because at the very beginning of all of this, there was uh, a lot of concern that we would run out of protective gear very quickly, um, just because the normal supply that we stock was just that the normal supply that we stock not the supply that we stock in order to have every single person in our building every single day wearing a mask wearing a uh you know a whatever else they need um <clears throat> so that was the first thing that we got figured out and really that was um after a couple of hiccups with uh 
different vendors, uh, it, it really was a pretty smooth process to get that ironed out. Um, and then the second thing was figuring out um, the flow from when the patient came in our doors, typically going to be in the ER, um, to where they go in the ER, and then having a specific unit designated for COVID-19 patients. Um, we, uh, and, and that was really pretty simple as well. Uh, we had to figure out how many rooms were negative pressure rooms, um, how many rooms um, could, could uh, kind of be um, retroed in order to be negative pressure rooms. And then what does that also, mean, negative pressure room? The, the, um, so that's with, um, it means that fresh air kind of is cycling in. It, it pulls the dirty air out and cycles fresh air in every, um, I can't, I'm thinking the, the standard is, um, I want to say six times an hour. Uh, that the that the air is completely replenished essentially, um, and so that's just just to with the air whether it is airborne or whether it is droplet, it kind of mitigates that risk because all of those particles aren't sticking around because it's completely getting refreshed over and over and over and over. Um, so figuring out what rooms we had with those capabilities. And then, uh, obviously, the other big thing that, that everyone is talking about is uh, the ventilators. Having a ventilator, having enough ventilators, because um, apparently everybody that has coronavirus has to be on a ventilator. I don't, that's actually science. Um, I'm, picking no, up on, I'm picking up on your sarcasm there. Just, just, a, just a little bit. Um, it you know it it's and and we do we have we have plenty of um, resources here in Topeka. Um, I it at the at the rate we're going and at the um, current predictions for when we will peak, I don't see uh, you know us getting overwhelmed. Um, you know, it'll, it, it could get a little hectic at the end of next week and into the beginning or, or at the end of this week and into the beginning of next week. But beyond that, I don't, I don't anticipate a whole lot. Um, the other interesting thing is, is that the, the um, positive patients we have had, um, most of them, well, I won't say most. At least half of them um, have been outpatient. Uh, so they they got tested and they went home and they're fine enough to be going through COVID nineteen at home. Um, you know, so it's I, I just don't see. And granted, being in Kansas, we do have. Uh, far less cases than, than a lot of other locations. Um, but I just don't see the predictions and the models for um, death toll to be accurate. 
the other thing that I with death that the mortality statistics that bother me is the is the you know I I was just looking at the numbers earlier today and I think right now technically by how they're doing it we are sitting at like a 3.8 percent uh, mortality rate for total COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. compared to total confirmed positive cases in the U.S. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, leaving aside the um, the uh, inaccuracies of cause of death, uh, let's let's even pretend that 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 the the death number is correct or the cause of death is COVID-19 for everybody that dies ever having had COVID-19. Um, there, the, the positive cases is, and, and obviously we can only report confirmed cases because at this point we haven't, you know, done a widespread testing of any given population to see if we can determine the prevalence of this disease based on who's got antibodies and who doesn't. Um, but I really do think that it's grossly underestimated uh, to, the, to the number of, I mean, I would think hundreds of thousands of more cases. You know, and one thing that, that tells me that is in the positives, even in the few positives that we have seen in uh, Topeka, uh, several of them have no known exposure. Like they, they say, no, I haven't traveled to any hotspot. I've, I've not been around anybody that uh, has a confirmed positive. I've not been around anybody I recall that, that had uh, these symptoms. And so, you know, that obviously they had to get it from somewhere, um, you know, unless it, I don't know. Maybe maybe God gave it to him, but I don't think that's real. <laughs> uh, maybe, the, maybe it was a Chinese, like a Chinese spy came over and like is secretly injecting <laughs> people. Um, aside from that, you know, really the only other logical explanation is there are a lot of people out there that are silent carriers. Um, that. I mean, yeah, there's that, just no so, other so let, explanation for let, it because we don't so, have people eating bats in America. <laughs> I don't know. Bat stew is pretty darn good if you've had it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, oh, but, but, let's talk, but, but let's talk about this for a minute. I mean, the, the thing that drives me crazy is that you know, in order to calculate, uh, you know, a mortality rate for something, you need both a, a numerator that's reliable and the denominator that's reliable. And at this point, I feel like we don't have reliable numbers for either one of those sides of the equation. And so, mm -hmm. how are we? How can we possibly know what the correct number is? And if anything, yeah, no. it's going to be better, meaning less damaging than we can than we could think like yes. it's only going to get better the number of cases 
and the number yeah. of people that have had it and have and have gotten over it. It just seems like the media is reporting this as gospel truth and and it's nuts. And we're 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 implementing draconian policies that are shutting down economies and creating mm-hmm. real harm and legitimate heartache and pain and 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 even death on people that is is not covid related specifically um and 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 i worry mm-hmm. that the cure to this thing is going to be far worse than the disease itself oh absolutely absolutely you know i as you were just talking one of the things that that came to mind in addition to the um, you know, we, we are seeing an increase in suicide. Uh, we're seeing an increase in um, uh, domestic violence and things like that. Um, but another one of the long-term issues, uh, something that's been kind of a hot topic for, for several years now, is that there will be a mass shortage uh, of nurses in America. And what we're doing right now to nurses, I can't even predict the fallout from this in terms of just complete burnout. I mean, we're talking, yeah, and especially young nurses, because there are a lot of the times young nurses are the ones that want to go work in the ER, that want to go work in the ICU. Um and, and they just don't have those uh, kind of that skill set of um, or the resiliency, I guess, I guess you could call it um, to handle the, the amount of pressure that's being put on them right now. And they're being I mean, can you imagine having to go to work every day where you are told if you don't put on protective gear from head to toe at the least you will get extremely sick and at the most you will die like day after day after day after day going to work and getting told that so I, i certainly can see you know the trauma that that would cause but what is there an alternative to that i mean we're gonna we're gonna get the cases that we're gonna get we're, we're gonna get the number of cases that we're gonna get right, mm-hmm. and we have to have nurses that are there to treat them. So you know, in terms of a discussion of of policy and what we could potentially do differently, which of course yeah. I am very anxious to have, and you mm-hmm. know, even though nobody else is willing to, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm not quite yeah. sure how we could do anything differently for the nurses. Yeah, well, I don't know. The, the one thing that that is um, seems a bit unnecessary is this whole universal masking policy and the whole treating every single patient that comes through our doors as a high risk for infection. When, I mean, hospitals have isolation patients all the time they have people on droplet precautions they have people on airborne precautions and nurses know what to do they go into the well they they put on their protective gear they go into the room they treat the patient they come out of the room they take off their protective gear they move on to the next patient um so i you know i 
the, the problem isn't having the nurses take all of the additional precautions to treat these, these patients. The problem is treating every single person as a potential risk is, is just absurd in my mind. Um, you know, I'll, I'll so bring let me ask the, you something. Employee so, health aspect. Yeah, yeah. So is is that driven by a desire to avoid any nurses from getting the virus? Is that is that the point, or w- would we be better served by maybe operating under a paradigm where we would expect that a lot of nurses are going to get it? But under the expectation that the vast majority of them are going to recover and be completely fine and then be able to get back to work without any worry about contracting the virus. Is that sort of the the alternative that we would consider? Um, I mean, yes, I think so. And and even even with the, um, you know, kind of making that asterisk of, yeah, there will be nurses that get sick from this if we don't treat everybody as a risk. Uh, you know, that that number is going to be quite low. Um, because I, when, when I think of the other types of isolation patients that come into the hospital, the, the risk of exposure before we figure out what's wrong with them is relatively low because their contact, the first thing you do with a person when they come to the hospital is you figure out what's wrong with them and then you treat them accordingly. Um, you know, but it just, I, I understand the, I understand taking some precautions. I understand being safe. I understand not wanting to, um, you know, spread the disease to your entire nursing staff. Obviously, that that makes sense. That would be a horrible thing to do. Um, but I mean, we've gone so far as to it's just it's really comical to me in the employee health world where I've got employees calling me because they have um, a cough and a fever. You know where three months ago, if that was the case, I would have said, okay, well, go see your doctor, get an antibiotic and come back to work or wait a day. If you still don't have, if you don't have a fever tomorrow, come to work. Whereas now those people are out for a minimum of seven days because Hmm. we're treating every single person that has anything remotely close to these symptoms of COVID-19, we're treating them like they have the disease instead of just any, you know, during flu season, I don't treat every single person with, you know, cough and congestion. I don't treat all of them like they have the flu. So why are we doing that right now with COVID-19? It just is... Uh, it seems like a great waste of resources. So we're at the point now where 
and again, you know, not not at all to minimize the deaths or the suffering involved from this, but we're at the point now where the projected numbers are, you know, in the range of, uh, you know, the number of deaths we would expect to see in an average flu season, which is sixty thousand, as far as I know. I think that that's the most recent estimate. So, mm-hmm. no, knowing that, do you think that we should be treating this any differently? than the way that we treat the seasonal flu? Yes and no. Um, I, I think the one thing that makes this more difficult than seasonal flu um, is the novel part, the novel part of novel coronavirus 19. Um, if it turns out to be no more infectious, uh, no more deadly than annual flu in general, then yeah, let's absolutely treat it as the same as the flu. Um, you know, the, the problem being that it is still relatively new. Um, so I, I do think that some kind of additional caution um is warranted uh but but the to the degree that we have taken things uh is is clearly above and beyond what what could be considered uh an appropriate response to a flu like sickness Okay, so I, I, I'm seeing sort of you know the, there's sort of there's a debate going on you know to the extent that a lot of these social media platforms and the media will actually allow a debate where you know you've got sort of the mainstream uh-huh. official approved consensus which says we need to do this you know really drastic social distancing. And we need to be very, very cautious about opening up the economy, allowing people to go back to work. And with the recognition that it's entirely possible that we'll have to do all of this again in the fall. Um, And then in opposition to that is a different approach, a different paradigm that is arguing. And again, I'm not saying one is right or wrong. I'm just saying these are the these are the things that I'm, I'm reading and sort of the alternative approach that I'm hearing is that instead of doing massive quarantine for everybody, even those that are, as far as we know, still well, um, that instead we should let everybody get back to work. We should let everybody go back to school uh, with the exception of the highest risk and the people that are confirmed to already have uh, the disease. And that the emphasis should be not on quarantining everybody in an attempt to slow the virus so that we don't overwhelm the healthcare system, but that we should focus on quarantining just the highest risk patients, the elderly, the immunocompromised, et cetera, the ones that would die with you know multiple comorbidities, et cetera, and that to let everybody else get back to work uh, in order to you know prevent all of these downstream effects that we are just now starting to see um, throughout the economy and throughout society. Do, do you have any opinion in terms of you know, developing a herd immunity on, on, on which, whether which strategy is better than another and whether 
which which approach we should take? Uh, yeah, I, I would. I mean, if if it were up to me to make this decision, and thank God that it's not. Um, <laughs> you know, I I would think that the allowing things to continue as normal while taking some form of precaution for those high-risk individuals, whether that means, um, you know, stricter um, visitor policies for retirement homes uh, or nursing homes or, you know, rehab facilities um, or just an increased public awareness um, and, and kind of gearing all of the um, education and all of the um, services to that population, whether it be the elderly, the immunocompromised, or the um, folks with um, pre-existing conditions. Um, but, but even to that extent, <laughs> me being in that category, uh, if, if the whole rest of the world weren't quarantined right now and someone came to me and said, hey, uh, we need you to quarantine till this is over, um, that would, no, my, my response would probably not be compliant and uh, saying, oh, thank you. Thank you for telling me. I will definitely stay in my home. Um, you know, because I think part of the, uh, part of the, I guess, just wonder that is adulthood and living in a free society is taking the information that we have, combining it with the freedoms and rights that we have, and coming to our own conclusion, and then accepting the consequences of our actions. Um, you know, again, I think educating people of this is what's going on, we've got this outbreak, here are the high-risk individuals, not high-risk in that they're the only ones that are going to get the sickness, but high-risk in the sense of these are the ones that it's going to hospitalize for an extended period of time or potentially they will die from it. Um, and just providing that education. You know, if you have people like that in your life, Maybe you visit them less. Maybe you take additional precautions if you are going to go visit them. Um, you know, and, and just being, I'm a, you know, big, big fan of kind of common sense precautions. You know, if, if you don't want hepatitis, maybe don't use that needle you found on the, on the tram in San Francisco, you know? Same thing. If you don't want COVID-19 and you're at high risk for it, don't go out and be around a bunch of sick people. But as far as everybody else goes, 
that that it's not going to be any more severe than you know the average flu why do they need to stop their lives yeah well let me ask you one more thing before we wrap up here um you had briefly referred to the um uh, the mor- the mortality rates and the way that we handle counting deaths. Um, you know, D- Deborah Burks, who's in front of the cameras every day, specifically said in one of her press conferences that they're being very liberal in the way that they calculate COVID-19 related deaths. And the instructions from the CDC to physicians that are filling out death certificates, it's basically that it, it, if they have COVID-19, they're assumed to have died from COVID-19. And even in a lot of cases Mm -hmm. where they aren't even being tested, they are putting the death down as being COVID-19 related. So do you see a problem with that method? And what does that mean for the calculation of the death rate? Uh, I mean, I I think there is a problem with that from the standpoint of obviously if that's how we're reporting deaths, then there really is no reliable way to calculate mortality rate for COVID-19 because we're saying that that would be like saying anybody who has uh, I mean, pick a, pick a disease, has high blood pressure, that's listed as their cause of death on their death certificate. And so then we're going to have a hell of a lot of people in this country that die from high blood pressure when in all actuality, they just had high blood pressure and died. And, and so obviously not the same thing. Um, now, whether or not... I, whether or not I have a problem with that um, method of of listing it as cause of death, just from a uh, kind of a medical standpoint, um, you know, it's hard to say. Um, it, it, if the biggest problem with it is obviously using it to calculate mortality rate. If if you take the mortality rate question out, then it, it it doesn't particularly matter at this point um, what they list the cause of death as. Um, I think what it what it will impact kind of in the future is um, we're starting we're giving ourselves kind of a negative starting point for figuring this thing out. If it is something that is going to come back around again, Uh, you know, whereas if we're seeing 4% mortality rate right now, based off of how we're filling out death certificates and it comes back in four, six, eight months. And at that point in time, we see a, 1% 1% death rate or a 0.01 death rate that it's just going to um, <coughs> that will just create a lot of problems 
um, for any any remote sense of reliability within any of these COVID-19 numbers. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it creates a lot, it creates a lot of problems, not just the inaccuracy of calculating the mortality rate, but also figuring this thing out in the future of, you know, predicting how serious of a disease is this actually? Is it something that's changing over time? Is, is the, is the um, mortality rate decreasing because of herd immunity? Are people acquiring uh, you know, antibodies to fight this off and therefore it's not as bad? Or were we just way, way, way off at the beginning when we said it has a 4% mortality rate? And that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, I guess time will tell. But uh, I really appreciate your time mm -hmm. and, and your perspective from being, you know, within the industry and, you know, your unique personal reflection as well with being immunocompromised and um I, you know prayers definitely are in your direction for continued health and safety for you and your family and i really appreciate your time and thank your you, expertise you. yeah i enjoyed uh enjoyed coming on and uh maybe having a little less of a closed mind <laughs> that's the goal that's really the goal after all <laughs> thanks brady yeah thanks seth as you continue to follow this pandemic in the news and track the way our experts and political leaders are responding, let me urge skepticism. Here are three things to keep in the back of your mind while consuming the news. One, the projections based on models have been unbelievably, embarrassingly bad. It's like somebody threw a dart at Toledo and hit Bangladesh instead. Two, don't give social distancing credit for the, for the massive drop in numbers. All of the projections included expectations of full social distancing, and yet they were still astronomically off. We are being gaslighted right now about this. Number three, and this is more of a framework item. What do you believe the role of government is? Should it protect us from ourselves or protect our liberties and allow us to manage our own risk profiles? We've already seen major reductions in our liberties. Consider some of these questions. Traffic fatalities have dropped significantly during the quarantine, or as I put it, house arrest. Would the government be justified to continue the shutdown in the interest of saving tens of thousands of lives from car accidents? There are lots of reasons to be skeptical of our annual flu numbers, but assuming the 60 to 80,000 annual death rate is actually accurate, why shouldn't the government take similar measures to prevent those? Here's another. Have you ever noticed that every time a crisis occurs, governments ask for more power? They justify it as temporary, generally, but their power levels pretty much never go down to the baseline. It's a ratchet effect. Think of the Patriot Act after 9-11. And indeed, governments all over the world are using this crisis right now as an opportunity to consolidate power and violate people's rights. So with those things in mind... Here are some resources and additional voices that are worth paying attention to. And again, all these will be available at closedmindedpodcast.com slash pandemic. So here are some alternative voices. Uh, Dr. Nut Witkowski, he is a biomedical statistician. He worked for 15 years with a leading uh, epidemiologist on the HIV virus. Um, he also spent 20 years heading up the Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology, and Research Design at the Rockefeller University in New York. 
Uh, he is currently CEO of a company that researches treatments for complex diseases. And I've got two links to interviews that he gave recently. One is a YouTube interview uh, and a subsequent article described as Stand Up for Your Rights. And uh, he also more recently gave an interview with reporter John Solomon. And I highly encourage you to listen to that. Um, he's got a wildly different take on social distancing, herd immunity, closing everything down um, from just about anybody else. And it's, he's a really fascinating and articulate guy. Uh, next is uh, Alvik Roy. He's a healthcare policy analyst and the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Ben Dominich of The Federalist interviewed Roy uh, about his newly released plan to open the economy responsibly without having a vaccine or testing or a cure for COVID-19. So check out that interview as well. Uh, next is Alex Berenson. Uh, he's a former New York Times journalist with an eye for data analysis and spotting BS. Uh, his tweet threads over the last few weeks have made for really great and entertaining and edifying reading. So I will link to his Twitter profile. Next is Jonathan Geach. He's a doctor. Um, he posted a very calmly and rationally argued piece to Medium. And that was uh, also signed off by other physicians. And Medium pulled it down because they thought that he disagreed with the value of social distancing. He actually didn't. Uh, so they pulled it down censoring him. And um, after a couple of tweaks where he went out of his way, although he shouldn't have needed to, to make it clear that he does uh, agree with social distancing, uh, he reposted it and they have let it stay up. Um, and he also has a more recent article uh, from just uh, yesterday. And those are titled Eight Reasons to End the Lockdown as Soon as Possible. And the newest one is Moving the, Go Moving the Goalposts, Four Reasons It is Safe to Open America. So I'll send give you links to those as well as his Twitter handle. Uh, next is Steve Deese. He gave an interview on the Cross Politic Network. Um, he's not an expert in the medical field, but he does have expertise and, and experience with analyzing models and deconstructing arguments. Um, so he looks at the assumptions behind models and talks about uh, the most rational way to respond to the virus. Um, and I will give the link to that interview as well. Uh, next is the Ron Paul Liberty Report, which is a daily podcast, and there's been a lot of really good content and commentary on the creeping authoritarianism of the state in response to this pandemic. Uh, so that's really good. Get an alternative view from what you're seeing on CNN and all the other crap corporate media outlets. Alex Epstein of the Center for Industrial Progress is one of the clearest thinkers on the foundational issues in play with how society should respond to natural disasters, among other things. His niche is looking at issues through the lens of human flourishing. In other words, what will do the most good for the most number of people? And also how to fully understand the myriad of trade-offs that are involved with any public policy. His recent book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, is just outstanding. It's one of the best books of popular level moral philosophy that I've ever read. He is articulate, compassionate, and reasoned. I'm linking here to an interview he gave to podcaster Tom Woods. Epstein is saying things about our response to this virus that I've not heard anywhere else. Highly, highly recommended. And then finally, uh, this is not directly related to COVID-19, but it is an extremely important and stimulating discussion uh, of how an improper understanding of how the world actually works can lead to grossly inaccurate conclusions. Uh, and this is a speech uh, that the author Michael Crichton gave back in 2005. 
Um, and it's just incredibly fascinating. I, I have been reflecting recently about what has influenced me over the years uh, about how I understand and interact with the scientific establishment, the media and their bias, the pitfalls of data models, etc. And I remembered reading a speech by Michael Crichton back in college and how much it had stuck with me. So I dug it back up and I, re I reread it. And man, does it hold some incredibly wise and helpful insights for our current times. Um, I realized now that this speech was a significant red pill moment in my intellectual development, especially in how I think about the complexity of the world and how foolishly we believe we can predict outcomes. I highly encourage you to read it. It's entertaining, gripping, and paradigm shifting. There's even a Q&A afterwards where somebody asks him about the next flu pandemic, and this speech is 15 years old. Obviously, I'm not a professional expert on any of these topics, but I would ask you this. What is your frame of mind towards understanding the natural world? Do you have a simplistic linear expectation for how things work? Are you familiar with the scientific concept of a complex system? Are you aware of the scores of doomsday scenarios from Y2K and overpopulation to power lines and magnets that have been promised with total certainty by the corporate press and our scientific institutions that are staffed with so-called experts? Are you aware of how often those predictions came to nothing, zilch, nada? What it comes down to is this. You cannot predict what will happen in a world as immensely complex as ours. And any claim to do so is pure arrogance. You, can't, you cannot control complex systems. You can only try to manage them with humility. So this speech really sets the stage for understanding that with some pretty stark examples. And um, really, it's for anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear. So I highly recommend that. Uh, one final note uh, about all the content that I've just referenced here. Uh, please don't assume that my guest, Brady, endorses any of these sources or their content. He very well might, or he may not. Um, I did not clear, clear these with him. We have not discussed them. So um, if any of this offends you, uh, don't attribute it back to him. Um, I'm not speaking for him here. So with that, we'll uh, close up this episode of the Close Minded Podcast. If you have enjoyed this content, uh, please consider uh, leaving a rating or review. Um, that goes a long way to getting more eyeballs and ears listening to the show, and that's uh, what I want to do. Really appreciate any feedback that you may want to send my way, and uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.